So let's just take a moment. You know, there's a lot of different things that have happened over the course of the week. There's a lot of different stresses and pressures that are undoubtedly pushing on all of us. And there is always the temptation to allow the events of yesterday and the week before or the fears of tomorrow and the week ahead to distract us from just taking this time, catching our breath, and just spending time focusing on the Lord. So if that's you, because I know that's me sometimes, let's just have a moment to stop, pause, and be still before the Lord. Would you, would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we, we come to you this morning living in a, a very harsh and cruel world, Lord. Every day, your people, they go up against darkness and they go up against just the corruption and the sinfulness of the world. They, they are exposed to it. They are constantly, Father, they are constantly deceived and betrayed and manipulated. There are those who would slander your people behind their backs, who would gossip about them, who would ridicule them because of their hope and their confidence in you. And Father, we know that you will save, but it is hard for us sometimes to take our eyes off of this present moment and to look at you. I pray, God, that you would remind us that looking at you is the solution to all our troubles. I pray, Father, that your spirit would open the eyes of our minds this morning to understand what you're saying in your word. And I pray, God, that as we quiet our hearts and still ourselves before you, that you would help us to see what it is you've called us to and that you would give us faith, that you would strengthen weak hands and support bending knees, that your people would become all that you want them to become. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This month, 15 years ago, 19 terrorists climbed aboard four separate airplanes and commenced an attack on innocent civilians, bringing down 210-story buildings, demolishing the United States Defense Department's building, the Pentagon, and a fourth plane was crashed into a field outside of Pennsylvania. For me, I was 20 at the time that it happened. I was a young man trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And for lots and lots of young men, Lots and lots of guys that were just graduating high school at that time or had just graduated high school at that time. The very next day after September 11th, which was a Tuesday on Wednesday morning, we were all doing two things. We were first of all going to the blood clinic to donate blood. And for quite a few of us, we were going to the recruiter's office. Army, Navy, Air Force. And for the few and the proud. Some of us, we were going to the Marine Corps. We enlisted because we were angry. We were hurt. Our illusions of safety and security had been removed. We understood that there was real evil in the world. I can still recall President Bush's speech that he gave to the nation that night. You never hear politicians talk like this, and really they don't. They still don't. But for one day, for one evening, we had the courage to face what was really before us. As he addressed the nation that evening, he gave a short few remarks. He just spoke for a few minutes. He made two statements which stood out to me that evening and which prompted my actions the next day. Today, our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature. This is satanic, but this is us. That stood out to me as a young 20-something. The next comment he made, I ask for your prayers tonight. For all those who grieve, for the children whose worlds have been shattered, for all those whose sense of safety and security has been threatened. And I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us. Spoken through the ages in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with us. Now those words captured a generation. An entire generation of 20-somethings realized that we weren't as safe as we had been led to believe. 
that we weren't as secure as what we had always assumed, and that there was a real darkness in this world, a real sinister hatred that couldn't be negotiated with, couldn't be debated. No amount of diplomacy could pacify evil. And so for a lot of young men, out of anger and out of a desire to see their country protected, they enlisted. For my part, I just didn't want my mom to have to ever turn on the evening news ever again. And to wonder if my brothers and sisters who might be working in tall buildings were dead or alive. Different guys signed up for different reasons, but it came down to one of two things. We want to hurt evil back, and we want to keep our families safe. Now, I imagine that for all of you at some point in your life, at different circumstances, in different situations, you've also experienced that same desire. You want your life to count for something. You want to make a difference. You want to change this world for the better. For some of you, you're young, you're at the beginning of your life, and you're thinking, how do I make a difference? How do I actually change this world? How do I alter things for the better? For some of you, perhaps you've come to the end of your life. You've entered retirement. Perhaps you've been retired for a long time. Maybe for some of you, you're looking back on your life, perhaps with regret, thinking, after all this time, I still don't feel that I've done anything lasting. I still don't feel that I've made any impact that will change anyone for the long term. You might be feeling disappointment and regret. Whether you are young and at the beginning of your life and asking the question, what do I do now to make things better? Or whether you're at the end of your life looking back and wondering, did I do anything to make anything better? I've got good news for all of you, regardless of what stage of life you're at. Right now, in this moment, you have the opportunity to make real, lasting, eternal difference. And you have that opportunity based upon what you do right here in this church with First Baptist worshiping Jesus Christ. This morning, I'm going to show you two things. Number one, the church can lose its way. And those churches that do are ultimately shut down by the sovereign hand of Christ. But the second thing I want you to see is if we will take those lessons to heart about how churches lose their way, and if we stay true to our King, the church, as it exalts the gospel of Jesus Christ, will always live, and it will always, always impact the world, and it will always hold forth salvation, and you will always be remembered if you give yourself to that. I want to begin this morning in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at three churches from chapter 2 to chapter 3. Before we do, I want to remind you of what we talked about last week. We looked at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. We skipped over the middle section there. We're going to be coming to that next week. We're going to be focusing more on the gospel next week. But what we realized last week was that through Jesus Christ, what he wants, us to, what he wants to do here among us is he wants to build us into a spiritual house. You are living stones as you come to him, and as living stones, he is using you to build, to construct, and to establish a house for the worship and the praise of his name, where prayers can be offered, where sacrifices can be made, where the gospel can be proclaimed where you yourselves are molded and formed by the people you walk amongst and you yourselves help form and mold them ultimately as God works among us. He wants to build you into a spiritual house. His calling on your life is that you would become a part of the church. But then the question remains, well, what church should we become a part of? And I don't want to confuse you. I don't want to hide the simple fact from your eyes. There are false churches out there. You have this sliding scale, if you will. You have a dividing line between true churches and false churches. And there are a great number of false churches. And so one of the questions we have to ask is, what is a false church? What makes a church a false church? Because ultimately, there's no blessing in being a part of those false churches. So that's the first question you have to ask. What is the difference between a false church and then a true church? And then the purpose of this sermon series that we're, talking, that we're going to be talking about over the next couple of months is on the side of the true churches, if you have false churches over here, we establish what a true church is. It is still, as we're going to see today from the book of Revelation, possible to have churches which are true churches but badly dysfunctional. And you have this sliding scale between 
as pure and as holy and as loving and as righteous and as gospel-exalting as you could possibly be. You have a pure church. And then you have churches which are true, but do they struggle? We're going to look at that. Number one, we want to make sure here at First Baptist Church that we're a part of a true church, number one. And having established that, what God is calling us to here to make a difference, to really change the world, is to labor here as living stones in his house to establish as pure a church as we possibly can. We're going to look at three different churches in Revelation. A couple of quick definitions first. I use this word church. You might be saying to yourself, well, a church is a building. No, no, it's not. It's really not. We looked at that last week, but I'm going to define the term for you. The word church, ekklesia is the Greek term. It literally means a called out assembly, the Greek preposition, the prefix on the front end of this word ek, out or from. And then the second half of the word klesia, it comes from the Greek word kaleo, to call. And so the biblical term for the church, a true understanding of this word ekklesia, is that we are called out, called apart from the world to this gathering this group, this holy house. That's what the word literally means. It's used about 115 times in the New Testament. It is used 13 times to describe the universal church, referencing all those individuals who've been saved throughout all time in history that are a part of God's redeemed. It's used 13 times in that regard, but the majority of the usages within the New Testament, over 90 times, you know, one of those times is debatable. Different scholars will say, no, 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 it's a reference to the universal. But at any rate, 90, maybe 91 times, it is referencing the local church. 40 times it's used in the singular, referring to a church in a particular city, such as the church in Jerusalem. 40 times it's used that way. Uh, sorry, yeah, 40 times it's used in the singular. But 14 times it will refer to multiple churches and 36 times in the New Testament, it's referring to multiple churches within the same city, okay? So the majority of the uses of this word ecclesia are not references to the universal church. The majority are references to the local church. And within that subset, the majority of those terms, the majority of that term, ecclesia, is used to refer to multiple churches existing within one city, okay? So that's the idea. When the Bible is talking about church, it can mean universal, but more often than not, more often than not, it's referring to the local assembly in your city, of which even the New Testament understands there will be more than one. That's what the Bible is saying. So let's come up with a definition. A definition of church or ecclesia would be this, and it has to be local. You have to understand it as a local assembly, such as what we have right here. A local church is a group of baptized believers who meet regularly to worship God through Jesus Christ, to be exhorted from, by, and through the Word of God, and to celebrate the Lord's Supper under the guidance of duly appointed pastors or leaders within the church, to celebrate communion together. That is the definition of church. It's a gathering of individuals baptized who celebrate communion under the leadership and the guidance of duly appointed pastoral leadership. That's the definition. Now, as we look at these three churches here, what I want you to see today is what constitutes a dying church, an unhealthy church, and a dead church, one that is dead. What you're all going to say to me is that in each one of these instances that we're about to look at in Revelation 2 to 3, the exhortation from Christ, even to the dead church, is to repent, to wake up, to restore yourselves back to a proper relationship with the Lord. And the question that you're going to be thinking about and that you're going to be asking your mind is, how exactly is this church dead if Christ is still able to exhort them to wake up, to restore themselves? In Matthew chapter 18, 19 and 20, don't flip there, Jesus makes this statement. He says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I among them. 
So we understand that church can be a term that's referring to the universal church. We understand that the term church is referring to a local church. We also need to understand that even within a church, there can be corruption. And yet, even in that corrupt and even false dead church, you may still have two or three believers, genuine Christ followers, who are gathered together. And Jesus says he is still with them. So it's not as cut and dry as this is right and this is wrong. They're all bad. They're all good. They're all pure. They're all corrupt. You'll find that within the church, as different people within that church surrender their lives to the Lord and walk with him, Christ promises that he'll be there with them. So keep that all in mind as we jump in to Revelation chapter 2. Now beginning in in Revelation chapter 2, I want you to start here with Pergamum, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, before we jump in, I want you to understand there are seven churches addressed from Revelation chapter 2 to Revelation chapter 3. I'm not going to get into all this today, but you need to know that this is a chiasm. You have the worst church at the front, Ephesus. Many of you are thinking, whoa, 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 they were doctrinally solid. They just didn't have love. They're not the worst church. They're probably one of the best churches. Wrong. Because 1 Corinthians 13 says if you don't have love, you've got nothing. Cold orthodoxy, believing the right things, But not having a heart that is inflamed with passion for Jesus Christ might as well be as dead as Laodicea. And the church at the end, Laodicea, what are they? They're totally dead. And he says, you're lukewarm. You're not hot. You're not cold. I'm just going to spit you out because you got no temperature that I desire. Okay? So the two worst churches are at the front and the back. Then you have the two good churches. You got uh, right after Ephesus, you've got Smyrna. And then right towards the back, you've got Philadelphia. Those two churches are praised, they're complimented for their faithfulness to Christ. There is no rebuke, there is no criticism there. And then you have these three churches in the middle. Now that's a chiasm. What that means is that the end reflects the beginning. The beginning reflects the end. You structure it in such a way that it's symmetrical, and the purpose of that is to draw your gaze into the middle of the chiasm, into the center of that section. Here, at the center of this chiasm, we find three churches, and there is a progression. You'll notice at the church at Pergamum, he makes this statement. Jump down to verse 14. I have a few things against you. I have a few problems with you, and he's going to name what those are. You look down at church at Thyatira, Verse 20, not a few things, just one thing. I have this against you. Now, in both instances, Pergamum and Thyatira, he says to Pergamum, I've got a few problems here. I need to correct those things. Church of Thyatira, he says, you've got one very significant problem. And then to the church at Sardis, he doesn't say, I have a few things against you. He just says, you're not one of mine, period. I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So we see here a progression in terms of the corruption of the church. There are a couple of problems here we can fix. And then as evil becomes more pronounced, it becomes more pervasive, and it becomes a singular problem. you got one major problem. you got this woman Jezebel running around in your church. And then from there, as he progresses to the last church, to, to Sardis, he says you're not even a church. So let's walk through it. Problem number one, as we slip from being a sick church to a dead church or a false church, here's where the problem starts. Notice how he addresses himself to the church of Sardis. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. He compliments them. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. He says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Okay, this is an Old Testament character. Balaam taught Balak how to corrupt the Israelites essentially, if the Israelites could be seduced into marrying pagan women, then their heart for the Lord would be compromised. They wouldn't worship the Lord in purity and in truth. It was a practice that God had condemned. Nevertheless, Balaam says, you want to bring Israel to its knees, here's how you do it. You get them to marry a bunch of foreign pagan women. Then he makes a statement, you also have some there who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Verse 15, verse 16, therefore repent. Now, here's the critical issue. In each of these letters, as Jesus addresses himself to the church, in his address, he gives a description of himself, which is the solution. If you will think about who it is that is speaking to you, and if you will fix your eyes and your gaze on him, he solves whatever the problem it is that he is critiquing in your church. What's their issue? Are they holding firm to the pure and unadulterated Word of God? No. They may be holding to the Word of God, but they're also holding at least two additional teachings which are contradictory to the Word of God. 
We understand it in the first century as the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I don't really know anything about the Nicolaitans. You can study all you want. You can consult all the commentaries. Everybody will offer all kinds of conjecture and speculation. At the end of the day, we really don't know what it is that these guys taught. If we were to take this church and bring it into the 21st century, Jesus might be saying something to the 21st century today. Hey, I got a lot of praise for you guys. You're doing a good job, but I got a few things against you. Number one, you're not holding to the pure and unadulterated word of God. You've got a couple of different teachings there that are inconsistent with what the Bible says. Maybe he wouldn't say to us today, you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, but I know for a fair number of churches out there, Jesus Christ would say you have a few there in your church who hold to the teaching of the Darwinians. You have a few there who believe that you can reconcile what I clearly teach in Genesis chapter 1, the creation of the world, with those who would suggest that Adam somehow is simply a symbol of 5,000 or 5 billion plus years of evolution. Jesus, if he were to write a letter to today's church, would say, you're doing a good job, but a few criticisms, you're holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And you know what else he might say to the church of today? Exactly what he said to the church of the first century. You're also holding to the teaching of Balaam. Balaam's advice to Balak was essentially this. Deceive the Israelites into marrying pagan women. All they need to know is that life's deepest happiness and deepest pleasure is found in the bedroom. Personal sexual gratification is more important than in your marital relationship honoring the Lord. I'm convinced that if Jesus were to write a, church to, a letter to today's church, he'd criticize the teaching of Charles Darwin and he would probably still criticize the teaching of Balaam, which is alive and well in our churches. How we interact with those we're dating, whether we sleep together outside of marriage, whether things like gender are fixed and established as a part of our identity. You notice there's a great deal of confusion happening in our churches today. Is a man a man? Is a woman a woman? Or can we just be whatever we want to be? And the relationships that we engage in with each other, does it have to be heterosexual, monogamous, committed relationships that take place within the properly prescribed limits of marriage, or do we just all hook up and have fun? That is very much plaguing our church today. And the exhortation given here to the church at Pergamum is, look at the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. God speaks Jesus is the ultimate word from God. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, before all the rest, there was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And what Christ is saying to the church here, he is the word, and from his mouth comes the sharp two-edged sword. The problems in your church is not that you're a bad group of people, but you are allowing the political philosophies of your world to corrupt the simple statement of Scripture and how it should guide your life. That's the first mistake. Anytime churches drift, that's where it starts, where we step away from text-driven preaching, exegetical preaching, and we say, how do we get this to reconcile with what modern science is suggesting to us? How do we get this to reconcile with what modern sexual proclivities are demanding. How do we make those two fit together? And Jesus is saying, sharp two-edged sword, one must take priority. One must be the one you hold to. So don't hold to the teaching of Balaam. Don't hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Don't hold to the teachings of today. Hold to the word. That's the first step down the slippery slope. What does it eventually progress to? Look Verse 18, the angel of the church in Thyatira, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is an indication, this is a description of one who walks in the holy of holies, who dwells in the most holy place. Fire is a, a symbol for purity, for holiness. Because they've stepped away from the word of God, they've stepped away from 
what else can we listen to? What else can, what other teachings can we hold to? And they've started to ask a slightly different question and a more dangerous question. How far can we go? They have this woman here, Jezebel. Again, it's an Old Testament reference. Won't take your time to take you to the Old Testament, but understand it this way. Jezebel was pure evil. She just wanted what she wanted, and she was not she didn't have any qualms about using whatever manner of deception, whatever manner of lies and manipulation just to get what she wanted. She would kill, she would slaughter, she would maim. She didn't care. She wanted what she wanted. And there was no cost, there was no extent, there was nothing sacred that she was not willing to defy in order to get what she wanted. We find here, this church in Thyatira, there is a woman there, so-called a worshiper of God, and because this church at some point has turned their gaze away from the pure and unadulterated preaching of God's word, they've turned their eyes towards how far we can go. See, there's two ways we can approach this question. Either how faithful can we be to Jesus, how closely can we walk the way Christ would have us to walk, or you can pose the question in a slightly different way, how much like the world can we live and still consider ourselves a Christian? How much can we go down the path of that sin and still be welcomed in the presence of the Father? One is a lifestyle of repentance. One is a lifestyle that pretends repentance but really seeks evil. And this church is pursuing that. His statement there is, you have a woman there, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, but she is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So sexual immorality and idolatry. Her goal, she says she's a prophetess, she says she's a teacher of God's word, but her ultimate goal is to lead God's people away from God. And for this church at Thyatira, they seem happy to comply sexual immorality, and who knows what else is going on there. They're embracing it. So you go from turning from the Word of God to turning away from God, turning away in terms of your walk. You've gone from, I want to hear nothing but Scripture, to how far can we go? And then finally, the third question that you begin to ask is, what are we even doing here? And that's the question that Jesus asks to the final church. Look with me. Chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're not. You're dead. So we have dying churches, we have sick churches, dying churches, and now we encounter a dead church. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And here's what he says. And this is the difference between a true church and a false church. You guys think you're living, but you're dead. Here's how you fix the situation. You wake up and you strengthen what there is. You haven't completed the bare minimum of salvation. He uses the word works. You haven't done, you haven't completed the works that are necessary in the eyes of my father. Now, you and I hear that, we're like, oh, but I thought salvation was based on faith. Look at what he says next. Here's the job he gives them to do. Verse 3, remember what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So the exhortation that he gives there to that church is that you haven't completed the works that you need to complete. Undoubtedly, this is a church, they think they're alive. So even in the exhortation that he gives them, they're possibly holding the idea that salvation is a works-based salvation. We don't really know all there is to know about this church, but maybe it's possible that they think because they look good on the outside, they're really saved and going to heaven. It might be that they're thinking, hey, we're just like the Pharisees of old. Look good, clean the outside of the cup, and because we look good, we're doing good. Jesus says, your works aren't enough. Your works are not complete. The play on words here, you'd expect him to give them another work, but he doesn't. He gives them an exhortation to faith. Notice what he says, remember then what you received and heard. 
Now, if you were to do a search through the New Testament, remember what you received and heard and keep it, you'd find a couple of different verses. There are several that are significant. First verse that I would remind you of comes from Galatians 1, sorry, Galatians 3, 1 to 2. The church at Galatia, they're slipping down the path of heresy. And the Apostle Paul's admonition to them is, Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The gospel hinges in what happened on the cross, not what you do. Okay? Number one. And then he poses this rhetorical question. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith. The exhortation of the church of Sardis is, remember what you heard. The rebuke to the church of Galatia is, when you were saved, when you received the Spirit, did you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The solution to this church's problem is not more works it's more confidence in the cross. That's the solution. Another passage I would draw your attention to, this is from Romans 10, 9 to 17. I'm going to skip a couple of verses here and there, but just listen. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe that Jesus is Lord, and you confess with your mouth, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you believe the word of God? Because this is what it just said to you. If you believe that God has raised Jesus from the dead and you acknowledge that with your mouth, if you present tense do those things, then you are past tense saved. Pay attention to the verbs. This is where grammar is so good. If you are actively confessing and believing, you have in the past tense already been saved. It isn't what you do. It's where you place your hope. That's from, that's from Romans chapter Chapter 9, chapter 10, he goes on. With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Notice that word again. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So then, the conclusion. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Which is exactly why when there are all kinds of problems confronting the church, when there are all kinds of division, when they have slipped off into all manner of mistakes and outright heresies and false practices and abominable types of things. Paul can say to the church at Corinth, this is what I would remind you of. I would remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received. Notice that? You've already been given it. In which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast, you hold fast to the word that I preach to you. The problem here for the church of Sardis is that they have forgotten the gospel. To turn away from the word is to stray into an unrepentant lifestyle. And the worst possible outcome of all of that is that you would be a part of an organization or an institution which would pass on religious tradition and practices and forget that salvation is a matter of faith. You say, preacher, you've started off the sermon talking about how to make our lives matter. You told us we can do that by joining the church, by serving in the church, and yet you've just shown us three churches which... For anybody that has any basic historical knowledge, these three churches don't exist anymore. They're all gone. You're saying that our lives can matter if we serve the church, and yet you're showing us three churches that don't survive, that don't exist anymore. It's a fair question.
question. There's something wrong with the people in those churches. Something wrong with their focus. But the problem is not in the concept of a church. Jordy, can I get some more volume, please? The problem is not in the concept of, thank you. The problem is not in the concept of the church. The church, from the moment that the gospel was first proclaimed, there has always been this idea of a church. Genesis chapter 12, I will make you, God speaking to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, nation of Israel, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families, which includes the families that are not naturally descended from Abraham, includes families that are not Jewish, all the families of the earth in you shall be blessed. Well, how does God fulfill that? He fulfills that through the church. Another scripture, Isaiah 4, 2, 5 through 9. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This, in the midst of a nation which is supposed to uphold the truth of God, he's saying something new is coming. And you'll notice from both of those passages, there's no escaping the truth of Jesus Christ. But there's also no escaping the church which he establishes. This comes about at Pentecost. It was foretold, it was promised, it was declared, it is happening at Pentecost. Peter says to them, he's preaching, they are cut to the heart, he's preaching primarily to Jews. They're convicted because they have had a hand in crucifying Jesus. They say, what should we do? And Peter's response, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and he continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who received his word those who received the gospel and believed in Jesus Christ, those who repented of their sins and placed their hope in Christ, says that they were added that day to the church about 3,000 souls. And the church moves forward. It starts in Jerusalem. It was foretold by Isaiah. It was foretold as far back as Genesis. And the church continues to move forward. It continues to carry the gospel forward. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is called to go to Joppa to visit this guy, Cornelius, a centurion. Cornelius has a dream. In the dream, the Holy Spirit says, send somebody to Joppa to the Simon the Tanner's house. Not this Simon the Tanner, but the one that lives by the sea. I mean, an incredibly specific direction. So he sends these guys. They find Peter just as they've been promised they would. He's on the roof. He's praying. He has this vision. He goes with them. He goes to Cornelius. The gospel is then proclaimed and moves outside of the Jewish nation and now goes to the Gentiles in fullness. Cornelius and his whole house get saved, and that's not the end. After Cornelius, there's this guy. He loves killing Christians for fun. He is the first Christian serial killer. His name is Saul. He encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus' statement is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? That's not what he says. He's killing Christians. He's persecuting the church. That's the truth of it. But Jesus' statement is, why are you persecuting me? Saul gets saved, and guess what? He becomes the greatest missionary in the history of missionaries. We have no idea how many churches he planted, but it is not too much of an exaggeration to say that this man, with a band of his fellow helpers, set the whole Mediterranean world on fire with the gospel planting churches in Asia all the way around to southern Europe. There's some speculation that he made it as far as Spain. We don't know that for a fact. But there's one critical moment that happens, one very, very specific moment in Acts chapter 16. It says Paul is trying to go into Asia, 
but he couldn't find an opportunity. And in the night, he has a vision. There's a man from Troas saying, come over here and help us. And as a result of that decision, the gospel moves from Asia over to Europe. It then spreads up into Europe. And over the next thousand years, churches are going to be planted. The gospel is going to be proclaimed. There will be sickness. There will be decay. The Roman Catholic Church will slide far from its understanding of salvation by faith. And it still remains there today in a works-based system. Nevertheless, the true church persists. A group which would later become known as the Pilgrims will settle Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts in 1620, fleeing from religious persecution, seeking to worship God according to the conscience of their hearts. They will go from Europe here to the Americas, and the gospel starting from Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620 will then slowly spread and work its way all across North America. So much so, that somewhere, and we don't know exactly when, Christians show up here. Most likely the first group of believers come in response to instructions given to them by J.J. Astor. They are fur traders exploring routes through the inland. They come here to Kamloops. They recognize it as a central city, a, cent- a place to establish a local city at the conjunction of two significant rivers. They don't stay long, but eventually others will come back here. And again, we don't know who they are, but eventually a number of decisions are going to be made. Kamloops is a great place for the conjoining of the two railroad lines. We have two major lines, one running north and south and one running east and west. They will meet here in Kamloops. There is a joining of rivers, one running north, one running west. They will meet here. That's what the meaning of Kamloops is, to come up to the joint where the waters meet. As miners flood into the area looking for the next big stake, they are supported by eventually cattle ranchers who will come to sell them beef as they're panning and looking for gold in all the streams and tributaries. And we don't know exactly when. But eventually, a group of Baptists are going to come together and say, let's form a Baptist church. Kamloops in 1874, the male population was 74 people. In 1874, there were 17 adult men. In 1882, there were 102 adult men. And in 1889, just seven years later, it goes from 102 adult men to 368 adult men with a population just a little over 1,000, roughly the size of Logan Lake. The church is not yet established. There are believers who are gathering here. They are coming primarily for fur. They're coming primarily for gold mining. Some are coming to sell cattle. We don't know who the first guy was to suggest it. We don't know. I've read all the history books I can get my hands on. There is no mention of his or her name. But somewhere around October 1st, 1898, we have this recorded in the Kamloops Sentinel. The Sentinel in that month of that year reports, quote, we learned that the Baptists in town are about to organize into a church. The BC Convention has appointed the Reverend Scott to take charge of the work. Do you know where they met? Community Hall, Raven Hall, run by a fellow by the name of George Raven. It's above his wagon shop. So down below, he works and repairs old wagons, and up above, they're gathering on Sundays to worship the Lord. It's like you and I meeting above a mechanic shop today. There's maybe two or three that gathered. We don't really know, but eventually it grew so much so that they ran out of space. Over the next two years, the church would then gather in open rooms available to them at the Odd Fellows Place and even the Masonic Lodge. The church was thriving. We don't know who those guys were. We don't know their names. We don't know their careers or their professions, but they gathered together and they built a church. Started off at 4th and Victoria, And eventually, under leadership of Dr. Daw, it would move here to this location. The property was purchased in 1959. Construction began later that year, and under the leadership of George Daw, it was completed in the summer of 1960. The first worship services were held here in July of 1960. And there's a few here who were there to see it. It is true 
that these three churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, they're gone. We don't know what happened to them. But it is false to think that the church will not carry on and go forward. I give my life to the church because of my love of the one who gave his life for the church. And I can say to you that the greatest contribution you will make is not whatever job or whatever career that you are working in. And I'm not saying that your jobs or your careers are meaningless. What I am saying to you is that your jobs and your careers only attain their full meaning through your service in the church. As you seek to reach out to your coworkers and your colleagues, your family and your friends, they need to see you first and foremost, not as Sally Sue Homemaker or Joe the Miner. They need to see you first and foremost as Joe Christian, the member of this church. And that if you want to have God in your life, you can go with them to that spiritual house where Christ is exalted. Here is the sum of the whole matter. The church has been proclaimed and prophecy from of old. It is still with us even after 2,000 years of the most intense persecution. And it will be here at the end of time by God's word. These guys that helped to build First Baptist, we don't even know who they are. We don't know what they did. We don't know what their career was. But who can deny the blessings that we're experiencing right here in this room because a couple of fur traders most likely got together over 120 years ago? Amen. And you may be sitting there thinking, I want to make a lasting difference. I want to make a contribution. I want my life to count for something. It can and it will as you labor to exalt Christ in this place and in this house. You see, the fundamental difference is this. You can impact lives, but you can't save them. 16 some odd years ago, a young man, I went off to war. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to help our country be safe. And this is what I realized. After all my time in the Marine Corps, a lot of lives were lost. A lot of battles were fought. We went back and forth across Iraq. And yet, for any vet looking back on it today, what was actually gained? From the transition of one political leader to the next, different priorities, different agendas take hold. We're not even really sure that there were ever any weapons of mass destruction, but that's what we all went to go find in order to keep our moms and dads safe. And looking back on it here, I can tell you now, I have realized this truth. Satan is alive and well. He desires to kill you and all that he can. He cannot be reasoned with. He cannot be negotiated with. There is no diplomacy that will placate or pacify him. He simply desires your death in the worst way possible. And despite all your good intentions, you can never kill Satan. It doesn't matter the size of the gun or the bullet you're shooting. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood but with the principalities and the power of the air. And the tools of our warfare are not physical tools, they are spiritual weapons. And here is the problem with all of history. It doesn't matter what issue you look at, whether it's starving children in Africa, lack of clean water, whether you're looking at economic socioeconomic differences from the upper class to the lower class. It doesn't matter what your pet issue is. All of them have the same source. It is this, that there is a God in heaven who desires to be worshipped, who is worthy of our praise. The greatest injustice in the world is that the one who deserves to be worshipped is not worshipped. And if he would be worshipped with all our hearts and with all our soul, with all our mind, he and he alone can make everything right. Which means if you want your life to count for something, you give your life to the worship of God through the local church. As we look at these three churches, there are three lessons you need to keep in mind. Lesson number one, 
You need to make sure the guy who stands at this desk, who preaches from this book, only preaches from this book. This is the Lord's church, not the preacher's church. This is the Lord's pulpit, not the preacher's soapbox. And in terms of who it is that needs to speak here, it is not me. It needs to be the word of God. It has to be the word of God. Number two, the question we must always be asking ourselves, despite the preaching of God's word, are we walking in brave, faithful obedience to what the word of God is saying to us? Even though the word may be correctly preached, are we still flirting with the temptations of Jezebel in this world? And then, number three, Number one is this, make sure you are hearing only the pure and unadulterated word of God, that the gospel is being accurately proclaimed. Number two, make sure you're walking in obedience to it individually, personally, you yourself. And then number three, make sure that you're holding the gospel high for others to embrace. Look at what Jesus says here to the church at Sardis. Verse three, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Verse 4, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the truth. There is a moment of reckoning coming. Though we cannot win with physical weapons, our King has promised that one day he will be victorious. And the question is, as far as the gospel is concerned, are we sure our names are written in that book of life? You have to shift your whole perspective. You are not an individual. You are an individual, but you can't think of your identity as just an individual anymore. You now belong to a people, and you serve a king. And that is the correct understanding of the gospel. On that night, September 11th, 15 years ago, Not only did I listen to George Bush give his speech, I saw politicians from across the political spectrum on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, come together out on the steps of the Capitol and they began to sing a song which is a prayer. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with the light from above. From the mountains to the prairies, to the oceans white with foam. God bless America, my home, sweet home. In the intervening years, I've become, I've been brought to the understanding, convicted, that you and I have a home. It's a sweet home. It's a glorious home. It's not America. And it's not Canada. Look around. Look to the person to your right and look to the person to your left. Know that Jesus walks here. Welcome home. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we do not want to be a dead and dying church and we see clearly the dangers presented to us turning away from your word, embracing immoral living, unrepentant lifestyle, and ultimately forgetting the gospel. Lord, we pray it would never be so here at First Baptist Church. God, we want to be a true church, and we recognize that any deviation from hearing your word, living a repentant and faithful lifestyle, and holding fast to the gospel, we know that any deviation from those things, Lord, will result in us becoming a false church, and we want to shine as a light for all future generations. God, help us to think of ourselves not first and foremost as Canadians or Americans or even Texans, Lord. 
God, help us to know that we are members of the household of God. That we are Christians following Jesus and we belong to a family. Help us to hold that in our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Al. I'm going to call on Joe Riley, if you would, please come and close us in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to come and serve at this church. Father, the preaching that we have heard this, this morning deeply heartened, and it was felt that we have work to do here at this church. And Father, the blessings that you've given us for all these years here at First Baptist Church, thank you for that. And for the blessings recently becoming stronger and stronger. We thank you for that. And the most blessing of all that we've had in the recent days is the joining of the two churches to make one, to make it stronger than ever. And Father, as we leave here this morning, 
Let us reflect on the many blessings that you've given us. And we just give our hearts and our souls to you. And we thank you for that. And Father, for all of those that are here this morning and heard the word, keep thinking about what was preached here today. And just keep looking into the book and learning there is only one book to look into, and that's our Bible. And Father, we just thank you for that. And as I said, as we leave this place, let us reflect on all of this. And Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for all the blessings that you've given us. Amen.